Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Nothing that goes on in the ministry or has gone on in all these years has ever been just put under a proverbial rug. If you lift the rug, it's clean under there. Even though other people may say, oh, but this or that or the other... You know what? They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. So much has happened while I've been away, and I'm really excited to get back behind the microphone and sharing some information about so many stories with all of you. Today's guests are attorneys Fred Nessler, Timothy Freiberg, and Thomas Nessler. They are from the law offices of Frederick W. Nessler and Associates, and the firm has been representing victims of sexual abuse against institutions and clergy for 35 years. In the last four years specifically, they've been working with victims emanating out of the IFB movement and have helped over 200 victims of sexual abuse take a step toward healing. One of the highest profile cases in the past year has been that of Paul Kingsbury and North Love Baptist Church in Rockford, Illinois. In May, a lawsuit was filed alleging that John Neese, a former deacon at North Love Baptist Church, sexually abused her from 2004 to 2006 when she was a teenager. On today's episode, I'm going to talk with them a little bit about abuse within churches and the legal response to it, and I also want to really dive into the North Love situation, answer some of the questions that I know my audience has been asking, and just some general information about how you can contact the law offices of Frederick W. Nessler and Associates in the instance that this case has affected you or if you've been affected by any case of abuse within an independent fundamental Baptist church. Without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host... Eric Skwarzynski. I have to know, first and foremost, your firm has had a lot of experience working with victims of clergy abuse, really starting with the Catholic Church. What inspired that work and how did the IFB really come onto your radar in the first place? 
I'll start a bit first with the inception of the work we've done with sexual abuse cases against institutions uh, of varietal natures. But in 1996 is when I first got the first few cases were referred to me by another law firm or had a conflict with a Catholic diocese. And began those cases, we of course caught a lot of flack from various sources, and including a lot of the folks in the community, some people affiliated with the church. Uh, a lot of people thought the first priest, the one we had identified, was perhaps being wrongfully accused. And uh, I was basically, I was threatened. I was threatened with a lot of things. I was told it would ruin our my career and so on. But we were steadfast. We pursued it. We investigated it, found out this particular individual had molested probably 50 kids or better uh, that we know of. And as it turned out, at the end of it, he was uh, laicized, or in other words, defrocked the Pope. And we continued to pursue those cases and still into the last year or two have had a couple of those cases pop up. Since then, we've handled these types of cases nationwide. I would say we're probably, I don't know, maybe one of 20 firms nationwide that handles volumes of these cases. Tim started with me. How long ago, Tim, was that? Uh, 2004. 2004. I brought him along with these cases in which he has become very good and very knowledgeable with now. Thomas is our, my son and our Florida partner and manages our Florida uh, offices. We have offices in Florida, Texas, Colorado, and five in Illinois. At any rate, as people came forward, many people were a bit reticent at first about uh, sharing uh, their story. They were um, somewhat uh, uh, intimidated by coming forward. But after we talked to folks and really went through the process with them, we advised and they found out that bringing these cases and bringing them to a conclusion with compensation for the wrongs done to them has really put a lot of closure in place for many people. And we've found... Um, admission of wrongdoing on the part of the perpetrator institution, along with the payment of that compensation to the victims, has really been a salve that has healed many open wounds. So I tell people, rely on us. Let us take the brunt of the problems for you on our shoulders and undertake these cases. And the vast majority resolve in settlement, either individual settlements or through a mediated process. We file some, most certainly, and uh, we've filed a group that we'll talk about in this podcast. But usually after that, and after some discovery and investigation, these cases come to resolution. In certain types of cases, with certain judicial for formats, we can sometimes use a John Doe. That isn't always a given but it's at least in the realm of possibility. Some people want to use their names and go straight forward and get it out, so to speak. But right. having said all that, we're very protective of our clients. We're very protective of their privacy. We're very protective of how we go about this and attempt to get resolution for them. Yeah. So having said all that, I, I tell people, if you would have told me now uh, in 1996, what I know now, I would have said, you're crazy. I, I can't believe people actually do that. But we have found uh, many instances and 
different denominations. It started with the Catholic Church, and now it's uh, spread not only to religious denominations, but certainly other private institutions. And having said that, I'm a strong Christian. I I firmly, I'm very firm in my faith, but uh, certainly uh, predatory pedophilia or predatory behavior and sexual assault is not part of the Christian faith. It needs to be rooted out, stamped out, and put to bed. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate the work you're doing. And obviously, it puts a big target on your back. And I'm sure there's many Christians that go, why are you attacking the church? The reality is, for many who grew up in the church, it's a painful thing to see this happening. And we want to see it change. And, and I appreciate the work there. And the other thing I really appreciate is the fact that there's so many options for victims. I talked to a victim probably a month ago now. And one of the things she kept saying was, I want to go forward with, with charges. I want to go through the legal process, but I don't care about money. Like I don't care about the financial side of it. And I love that you talked about the element of closure, hearing an admission of wrong. In many of these cases, as you're well aware, there's more than one victim. So it gives freedom to others to come forward. So I just love for our audience to be able to hear all the different options available to them and know that there are different paths they can take to, to see closure from these horrific cases. When, when I first undertook these cases, I went to our, my pastor, our founding mm. pastor, and I said, I've never sued a church. <laughs> and uh, he said, he said, in this type of situation, you need to root out the evil. Mm. And he said, he said, I think you're doing a good work. And, and I will say, I, I'm a deacon at my church. I'm, I happen to be ordained in the particular denomination I come from. I take these things very seriously, and it is not to go after an institution. Most institutions uh, are fine and do a very good job, but some where they have this, and you can say nothing more about it than this evil needs to be rooted out. Yeah, Thomas, I'd definitely be curious to know where the independent Baptist world came in. Obviously, that's the focus of my show. I have a lot of listeners who have experienced abuse or know someone who's experienced abuse within the independent Baptist movement. When did that first come onto your radar and what was maybe the first case, if you can talk about it, that kind of brought light to this for you? Okay. I joined the firm about five years ago and inside the firm, I, I wanted to get involved with Tim and my dad and what they were doing with the clergy abuse. And just by happen chance, uh, my dad, Fred and I were sitting in a Sunday service and, uh, a fellow that most people that listen to this podcast know was speaking, David Gibbs III. We introduced ourselves to him. And now we have a great working relationship with him and his organization, NCLL. So I first learned about IBF, Independent Fundamental Baptist, through him. And we got our first case. And, and Fred or Tim may have handled uh, Independent Fundamental Baptist prior to us being a, a prominent name in that community. But we handled our first at Plant City and uh, Plant City, Florida, that is. And uh, the more research I did, the more of them that came in, I just started seeing common ties to everything. Certain names that kept popping up, Hiles Anderson kept popping up, and these were all connected. They, they all called themselves independent, but these churches, but they all seem to be all roads led back to Indiana for some reason. And then I stumbled across your website, and that was a extremely great resource for us in tracking down some of these people and victims finding us. And now here we are. And the more we do, the more people that know about us, the more calls we get. And we get more of these calls every day at the office that people from around the country, we have, we're representing victims from New York to California right now. A lot of cases that you know about that are filed. So yeah. that's how we got into it. One of the biggest cases that's you know come to light in the past month 
really the past few weeks has been with Paul Kingsbury, North Love Baptist Church, Reformers Unanimous, all the ministries associated with that. And it's been constant discussion within my Facebook group on social media. I've had people direct messaging me nonstop about it. And I'm really excited to have you on, Tim. I know you're centered there in Rockford and you're really taking this case head on. In May, there was a lawsuit filed uh, alleging that John Neese, who was the former youth pastor, was sexually abusing a teenage girl from 2004 to 2006. I've also seen people share stories that date further back than that. What was the first case from North Love that really captured your attention and made you think we need to take action here? Just to clarify a few things. One, the case involving John Neese, he was not a youth pastor. From my understanding of what we have, he was a deacon. He had some other roles within the church. I know that's been, he's youth pastor been stated several times, but I just want to correct that because I I think Kingsbury talked about it in one of the sermons, and some of the newspapers have been catching flack for that as well. On Thursday of last week, someone sent me a an article that would be appearing in the Rockford Register Star on Friday. The article says lawsuit accuses former North Love youth pastor in Rockford of sex assault to minor. That's what the article says. It did come out on Friday. The author is a man, his name is Chris Green. He's a journalist. And Mr. Green made a mistake. He erred for some reason. Fact checker or just a simple phone call? Wouldn't have taken very much time at all. I don't know where I think I do, but <laughs> I think I know where he got the idea. But I, but this gentleman was never employed by North Club Baptist Church or any of our ministries. Never a youth pastor. Now you and I know. Here's how it goes in journalism today. Oftentimes, now maybe this is just an honest mistake. In fact, I wonder if he got. 250 or you that are not watching online now are the men. But if they got hundreds of, just just folks that very kindly said, Mr. Green, and he's got a, on their website, he's got whatever it is, C Green and whatever. And they just said, I, I'm a member at North Love Baptist Church. <laughs> That's just, it's just not true. And we would appreciate an apology in the same font. I do want to interject something into the normal flow of the episode that I think is important when speaking to this exact issue. So this is a situation where Paul Kingsbury knowingly withheld information. So he states that Chris Green from the Rockford, Illinois newspaper that published this article made a mistake and could have just made a simple phone call to Paul Kingsbury to ask him about it. And it was later confirmed by the reporter that he reached out to Paul Kingsbury twice by a phone call and those calls were ignored. And this was screenshotted in a text message from the reporter. So uh, you can see that here if you're watching the video, but if not, there are screenshots available on the North Love Do Right North Love Facebook page. But it's definitely worth noting when examining what Paul Kingsbury is saying here about this situation. The case against Nice was the first one that we got involved with. Since that time, uh, we've learned, as Tom's kind of alluded to, a lot of this is interconnected. 
And I grew up in Rockford, have lived here my whole life, except for when I was at school and a few years down in Springfield with Fred's office. But I, I probably passed this church a hundred times, never mm. thought two things about it. Didn't know there was a school there. I assume most other people in Rockford probably have the same thought about it. And, and I think the only recognition of RU is because Josh Duggar came to town and that's a, yeah. you know apparently a big deal. Since we filed the case, we have since gotten more calls about this. And I've obviously uh, had to do a ton of research revol- revolving around Kingsbury and other individuals there who have been accused. We've I've probably talked to at least 10 to 12 different people mm. who have had some involvement with North Love. And they all involve different individuals. Um, I'm not gonna, again, I'm not going to go into those names, but there'll be two more lawsuits filed within the next month. Mm. And the common denominator in those cases is we're not filing these cases against, against Kingsbury individually, but his name comes up time and time again as someone who was notified that these things were occurring and nothing happened. There's bad guys in every institution in the world. And the fact that they do something wrong while they're, under, while they're working for you or whatever the case might be, that's not necessarily a lawsuit. It becomes a lawsuit when you do nothing and you check mm. these guys and cover this stuff up. And that's what's problematic in these situations. That's the problem with North Love. They could have rooted these guys out, got rid of them and moved on, but they didn't. They protected oh. them, moved them to foreign countries or whatever the case might be. And I really credit... Uh, the individual who came forward and filed a lawsuit, I don't know if we're discussing her name or not, but I think she's going by Sarah on the local papers here. But I really credit her because, as Fred said before, a lot of these people think it was just me. It was just my case. I'm the only one. And since then, like I said, we've gotten numerous calls, heard numerous stories, and more people are uh, getting more confident, coming forward, willing to use their names in these lawsuits. And it's just, it's created a avalanche of uh, information coming forward. And, and the best part of all of it is it's created change within the church. Mm-hmm. Kingsbury has resigned. Some individuals with RU have resigned. And I, I'm not saying that's going to change anything. Hopefully it, it changes the culture of the church and puts them on notice that, hey, we need to protect kids in the future and do the right thing when it comes to allegations of abuse. You, you mentioned Kingsbury is not the direct focus of these lawsuits. And that was one thing I wanted to get clarity on. Who is the direct focus? And is Kingsbury liable? If he did find out about these, obviously he's a, a mandated reporter. Is Would this affect him legally? Is he a big part of that? Or is it mainly on the ministry itself? North Love is the focus because North Love is the entity that employed all these individuals. So with a civil lawsuit, what we need is some kind of notice to the church that there was something going on and they failed to do it. That's how Mm. we're going after the church. We can sue these individuals and go after them directly, but there's no insurance. A lot of times individual people don't have any money. So if you get a judgment against them, you're never going to collect it anyway. So Kingsbury, as an agent of the church and the man in charge, so to speak, he was the one with the duty to report these things and get these problems fixed. Mm. So he's not named in the lawsuit, but as the man, the biggest mandatory reporter within that institution and, and mandatory reporting in Illinois, if you're working for that church, anyone from the janitor up to the head pastor is a mandatory reporter there. Yeah. So any agent that's notified teachers, whoever else was involved with the school or, or the church, their failure to report is what puts North love at risk in these lawsuits. 
And I, I know a lot of it has to allude to his liability. And in the civil case, his liability transfers North Love. Hmm. Now, that does not change anything as far as the criminal aspect of it. And I, I know uh, this had been a question, too. What are his criminal possibilities as far as failing to report these things? And in Illinois, a failure to report is, is a misdemeanor, class A misdemeanor. I don't know criminal law, so I don't know what that means, but I'm assuming it's, it's not a big charge. Now, failure to report numerous occasions is a class four felony. Hmm. And then as far as if you're basically working for an institution and you're working in some kind of scheme to cover up, to protect that institution, and a first time failure to report is a class four felony and a multiple failures to report as a class three felony. Hmm. So whether or not there'd be any criminal allegations that could ever come forth against North Love, I definitely think that's a possibility. And it's something the state's attorney can certainly look at. And I know they're getting calls from some of these individuals telling them about their stories. So it's, it's yeah. certainly something in the pike. And I know Jay Hanley personally, I saw him at a golf outing this past Monday and he asked me about this case. Who knows? You, you mentioned there's tons of people now sharing their stories. Some very publicly, some privately behind the scenes talking with you directly, who we can't name. But there's been 24 allegations of of sexual abuse that have been some way connected to love, to the Christian school, to Reformers Unanimous, to one of the ministries there. Um, One of the former members said that he thought there was a culture of abuse at North Love. Is that what you're seeing as you dive into these cases? Or would you say, how do you even process 24 out of a relatively small church? (laughs) I think you create a culture when it's known that there's no ramifications for your actions. Hmm. And here's another thing. Some of these individuals who are sent to RU are sent there for sexual impropriety. That's why they're there. If you have an underlying problem like that, I understand the faith-based healing, and, and I think that's a laudable idea, but it doesn't necessarily work. Pedophilia, those are psychological conditions that you can't fix by praying about it. And a lot of these people are brought to RU or brought in and they have these proclivities and they follow through with them while they're there. And the other aspect is the people who are there and do something wrong, nothing ever happens to them, then they feel safe doing it again. And that's when creating a culture, you are creating a culture by not fixing the problems and allowing these things to continue. You're essentially a lightning rod drawing all of this activity directly to you. If I may add a little, A, uh, predatory pedophilia is a chronic condition, which I think most psychiatrists would tell you is, if not easily, if at all, uh, able to be treated. Secondarily, and what Tim alluded to with uh, some of the institutions, the way they've handled it, I I know early days of the Catholic Church, uh, they would simply move some of these guys to a different parish, another parish. We had one instance where I think he was moved, uh, the perpetrator, from three or four different parishes, and we ended up with 40 to 50 different victims, 10 here, 20 there, 25 the next one. And uh, instead of dealing with it, and uh, there was an active effort to cover it up. Parents were told, don't say anything. The, some of the hierarchy was, in fact, dirty themselves, and, and that's what prompted that. So this is not an unusual set of circumstances if, in fact, that is what has occurred, because I've certainly seen it before. And I would also add, if anyone wants to talk about it, there are 
surely free to call Tim or Thomas or myself. We have a toll-free 800 number, 1-800-727-8010, 1-800-727-8010, and we'll be happy to chat with them about it. And any one of the lawyers will talk to them. I, I am curious too, I, just to, to look at the other side of this, because one thing that happens in all of these cases, and I'm sure you hear this often from ministries that you're, you're dealing with, is when you see a number that feels, for those that haven't ever experienced these cases or, or looked into this, a, a number like 24 people or 10 people, or even sometimes one person seems unbelievable. How could this happen within a church? We, we can't imagine this. And what would you say, since you've experienced decades of dealing with these cases, what would you say to those who say, okay, when there's a a lawsuit, many just pile on and there's all these people chasing the the attention of these cases where they're looking for an opportunity to tear down a ministry. Is it common when you have people come forward that there is false allegations, false reporting, or is that a minority in in these situations? I would say it's very uncommon. Uh, Hmm. I think the the reason a lot of people come forward once a lawsuit is filed, they say, yeah, that happened to me and somebody's taken the lead. And now mm-hmm. I feel more comfortable about discussing it or talking about it early on. And to some extent still now, we have a pretty, uh, I think, good vetting process, but we've had everybody polygraphed. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I can tell you, gosh, I think in early on, if we had, I don't hold me to these numbers, if we had. 50 people polygraphed, I, I would say I can remember one that failed to polygraph. Wow. It was the people that were coming forward were truthful. Now, not to say that when you say piling on, I don't think that's the issue. I, I think it's okay. There's been a leader. Now I'm going to follow and, yeah. and tell my story. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly what I assumed your answer would be. And that's what I've seen happen because you see these cases happen. That's common. I, I get it in my comments all the time, which I struggle to read my YouTube comments sometimes when you talk about these cases. Um, but there's a lot of people who see these stories. They see calls for other people to come forward. And their assumption is that, oh, it's this rallying to destroy a ministry or this it's this bandwagoning kind of situation, which when you look down at the stats, just is never the case. That's not how these situations work. It really isn't. And I'll tell you one little more vignette story that, you know, when I took that first set of cases out of uh, a small community in central Illinois and the priest that was identified, I had someone that I'd known all my life. My grandfather and I actually used to deliver eggs to his restaurant, uh, who was very involved with that church. And uh, he told me, he said, uh, he always called me Freddie. He said, Freddie, this is going to ruin your reputation. You need to drop this get away from it, you need to stop, went on and on. I continued on with it, uh, and we were born out to be exactly right. And the more people that came forward, the guy had the same grooming techniques, and I'm sure you're familiar with that, and how he handled many victims. And uh, finally, when he was laicized, after much to do and a lot of publicity, the same gentleman came back to me later on and said, Fred, he said, I'm sorry. He said, you were right. He said, I, I was just blinded, you know, by my involvement with the church. Yeah. And to some extent, I felt good about that because it was a dear family friend. But uh, I also think that is the same sense of closure it brings to a lot of people that, okay, 
okay, this has been proven true. It wasn't just me, you know, yeah. and uh, it's helpful to folks. Yeah. Did, did I hear you correctly when you said you polygraph? You're talking about the people that came forward in this. I said early, early, early on. on. Yeah, we did the late 1996, early 20s. I think our vetting process is probably awfully good now, and mm. we can ferret that out. Now, not to say I wouldn't ask someone for a particular reason to be polygraphed, only because if you get some insurance company or some institution that is doubting the veracity of, oh, I don't know, we haven't had many complaints about this person or that person, then, yeah, we might use a polygraph to just say it's boring, even though that information, the, the polygraph information would not necessarily be admissible in court, it's still uh, widely accepted as uh, if you're telling the truth, you're probably telling the truth, unless you're just such a pathological liar, you can fool a machine with very few, very few people. One, I'd say one and couple hundred thousand could sure yeah, yeah that's that's helpful yeah. so you mentioned you mentioned tim that there was a, a couple more lawsuits to be filed this month obviously with 24 names I'm, I'm assuming not all are going through the formal process of doing this but what are the next steps involving north love and what can we expect to see in the coming months yeah i was gonna say i actually talked to a gal this morning uh, so that will be another one mm. <laughs> one but yeah there will be definitely two new complaints uh, filed hopefully within the next couple of weeks. And these are instances where they have visual proof as in like emails and text messages of, you know, people contacting Kingsbury while this was occurring and saying, Hey, this is happening and receiving some kind of uh, response that pacified them to say, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. And it continued for years and years after that. Yeah. So, you know, those two will be coming forward. I anticipate just as these cases progress and more and more people hear about it and gain a little more confidence, maybe, then there'll be more coming down the road. And again, a lot of these people are, are happy with the pro- progress that's made so far. A lot of them just want to see, they don't want to shut the church down. They want to fix the problems that are there. A lot of them still have family members there. Yeah, and they want to know that hey, if my niece or nephew ends up going there, that they're going to be okay. And the removal of certain people, changing the culture, making other people aware of it, is definitely going to help. And that's just what's happened so far. I think has made a few of these people happy and justified what they've said and and what they're doing. I, d- I definitely want to give people an opportunity to get in touch with you, and we'll get into that in just a second. But I want to ask a couple questions that were given to me by some people within my group who had specific questions regarding this story specifically. And so we can run through those really quickly. Someone asked specifically when dealing with the legal system, are there additional considerations for crimes committed by a religious institution as it relates to an expectation of good moral standing? Well, I, I suppose I could speak to that. I, I don't think that law enforcement per se, criminal law enforcement takes one thing any more significantly than the next, although early on with the Catholic Church cases, it was very hard to get them to move, and many were concerned about political pressure and the like. That has since obviously dissipated, and from the standpoint of, I'll use that church as an example, they've cleaned up a lot of their mess and have much, much better vetting processes for their 
clergy and their lay people that are working with people. I've gotten calls from their victims group, frankly, here in Springfield and ask about a particular individual. Would I recommend that person or not? Did I know anything about them or not? And so they try to be, I think, a whole lot more careful and not to say that there wouldn't be other instances, obviously, but I, I think the days of them hating priests, so to speak, or moving them around are probably gone. And that's all because of these lawsuits that came forward. That's what made them move. That's what made the bishop's council come together and tell them, here's what you need to do. And if you uh, do settle a case, you can't ask for confidentiality. They have all kinds of rules now to better serve their parishioners and the victims. And that is because courageous people came forward, committed to bringing their story forward, both legally and sometimes in the media. We're not trying to try these cases in the media. That's not what I'm saying. But courageous people came forward. They got lawyers that were willing to undertake this. And it has made significant change for the good. I don't know if that fully answers your question, but I've seen the catharsis of this come about over the years. You mentioned the response of the church, and I do think, obviously, innocent until proven guilty, you have to go through the legal process. There's a lot of steps that have to happen. But I think just having the conversation and people saying this is unacceptable, people coming together and talking about these stories is going back to the culture conversation. It changes the culture. When you know that there is going to be these negative circumstances that happen as a result of engaging in these kind of activities, it's going to make you think twice. <laughs> Even if you have the worst of intentions, you're going to think twice before engaging in some of these activities. And, and I think that's why it's important to keep talking about it because silence isn't doing anybody any good except for the abuser. And another question that came in was who bears the financial burden of a monetary judgment? It says if members stop attending and stop tithing, the money dries up. Who's responsible for, for providing the money? I know, Tim, you mentioned insurance. Would that be the, the default for the, the ministry? Yes and no. It's tricky because a lot of these churches are insured for negligent acts. They're not insured for criminal acts. A lot of times there's coverage as far as their failure to report and their negligent hiring or retention of somebody. The issue we run into a lot of times is we're sometimes we're dealing with allegations that, you know, date back as far as 20, 30 years ago. The church might not know who insured them in 1988. So that's a tricky portion of it. But <sighs> So yeah, if there's no insurance company, then the burden does fall to the church individually. But in addition to maybe having a judgment enter against you or trying to settle a case, you're like you said, you're dealing with parishioners who are looking at this and saying, where's my money going? And I think that's another aspect of culture change is when, you know, the coffers start drying up, the deacons look at it and say, okay, something's got to give. People aren't coming, people aren't tithing. Let's fix it so we can get back to the business at hand. So, I mean, people don't want to give money that they think is going to go to a lawsuit for paying for sexual abuse. And I would add to that to say that when we style these lawsuits, we try to be very particular about alleging the negligent acts that would be covered by insurance rather than acts which would be the criminal nature. So when you have a situation where a institution might hire somebody without appropriately vetting them or negligently hiring, or after that, negligently supervising that individual, 
and or after that, negligently disregarding notices that have come to them about this individual, then that gets in the uh, realm of, and you cannot say categorically, this will be absolutely insurance will cover this and absolutely this won't. But depending on the policy, generally speaking, that the negligent acts will be covered. And uh, we are obviously cognizant of that when we're styling things. We, I want people to still tithe. I want people to still give. Now, in our particular, my own church, which has not had any of this problem, but it has prompted us, if we hire somebody in our church school, we run a background check. If we hire somebody that's going to deal with kids, we run a background check. We want to make sure as sure as possible that these people have no pedophilia in their history or no criminal acts in their history or violence, uh, what have you. And also, these sorts of suits have gone to prompt congregations and denominations to do that very thing, which is a very good, positive public policy result. I think we keep circling just the need for increased transparency with ministries when it comes to reporting, when it comes to dealing with these different topics. And I'll close on this last question. Someone mentioned, there's a clip of Kingsbury talking about not sweeping anything under the rug. And many of the actions that have taken place seem to indicate something else. There's been, like I mentioned, the resignation that that seems very oddly timed, a lot of weird verbiage in the, in the statements. And when we think about this, when we think about ministries and how they respond to these cases, having dealt with hundreds of them at this point, what would you hope to see a ministry like North Love do when facing allegations like this? And how, would, how should any church respond to allegations like this of, of sexual abuse or physical abuse or even financial abuse? Well, the very first thing, I think any prudent uh, denomination or uh, congregation needs to do a very thorough internal investigation, internal vetting. And if they have any allegations against any individual, that individual needs to be thoroughly vetted and investigated before they're allowed to continue on in ministry. Mm-hmm. I know if something like that happened in our congregation, we'd immediately take them out until we were able to discern, is there is this a valid complaint or not a valid complaint? And I think that's the very first thing they should do. And then they should implement systems and procedures in hiring that are going to properly vet people as they come in. Do a background check. Find out. Do some interviews. When I went to, I worked in Washington and for a couple of years, the FBI came and did a background check and vetted me very thoroughly because they knew I would have some security clearances and talked to a lot of people that knew me in my youth and, and et cetera. So that's process, if you will, I think it's very appropriate, very prudent. If we hire somebody here at our law office, we're going to try to check them out, do a background check, make sure we're hiring somebody that's honest and reliable, and then put those policies and procedures in place and follow them into the future. And then tell your congregation, hey, we've had this problem. We admit we've had this problem. Mm. We've uh, rooted out the individuals that caused the problem, and now we've implemented procedures to prevent these problems from happening into the future. Therefore, they can go on and thrive and become a uh, a viable congregation. For for those who have experienced abuse within these types of ministries and are trying to figure out what their options are, I know I get messages constantly with people asking me, "What's what's the best route to take, what to do? And I, I always 
tell them. I said, the fact that you're asking me shows how unclear the steps are for people who are facing these kind of situations. I'm not a legal expert. I'm not a therapist. I'm not any of these things, but I think for a lot of people, just knowing where to go is difficult and it can be hard knowing what the next step should be. So for someone who has experienced sexual abuse, they want to know their legal options. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you and see if there's something there or if there's any direction that they could take? Again, they can start by calling us if they wish. And that is 1-800-727-8010, 1-800-727-8010. And Certainly, if I'm available, I will talk to them. Tim's available. He will talk to them. And depending on location, Thomas may talk to them. And we have offices uh, throughout Illinois and Florida, Texas, and Colorado. We can certainly make provisions to talk to them. We also have, over the years, developed a network uh, of psychologists that are willing to help and talk. And they're people who are very caring and, and understand the harm and damage that's been done, and we can direct them in those areas too. We're not psychologists, we're not psychiatrists, but we're happy to give out names of people we know and trust. And and we'll talk it through. And if the person wants to go forward, great. If they don't, there's going to be no pressure to do that. But we'll certainly tell them what their options are. And as I said earlier, put the burden on us. Let us carry Mm -hmm. carry the load and take you where you need to go. And I think they'd find that closure. I just, I think, Tim, you got it too. We just resolved a case yesterday and and the guy sent a very nice email. His family was so relieved and they were so thankful and they were getting all together to celebrate the the victory and the closure. I think people will find a, a good result. Just one follow-up to that too. I know you mentioned all the states you have offices. If somebody's not in one of those locations, they're still more than able to contact you and oh, and reach out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, as Thomas said earlier, we're handling cases in California. We're handling cases in New York, Connecticut, all over. And because of the years we've done it, most times you can never say 100% of the time, but I think 99% of the time we can be admitted pro hoc vice on a particular case, which means we can go to whatever state or whatever court we need to go to to handle it. Amazing. Thank you so much, all of you, for taking time to talk through this. I know that there's been so many questions about this, and it, it seems like it keeps growing, this case specifically, but I know there's hundreds just like it. Uh, and so I really appreciate the information. And definitely, if you're listening to this episode, be sure to head to the show notes and check out the contact information. If you've been waiting to make a call, see what your options are. The best time is now just to see. And obviously, there's no pressure one way or the other, but it's worth knowing what potential routes you can take. But thank you so much to each and every one of you for joining me and for for talking through this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for helping so many people as well. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com.
Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or 7 Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.